there. I think if I grab it here, I can get this teddy bear out of there. You got it, Shuko. But maybe a little more to the left. Oh. I've never played with one of these before, so it's kind of really difficult to understand the mechanics behind it and where to go <laughs> and how, you know, fine gefühlig, as we say in German, um, you know, yeah, that the, kind of... Yeah, <laughs> the, the fine motor skills, exactly. Difficult! <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, now I got it. So if I now move over to the shoot... Yes, so dear listeners, you may have come to the conclusion by now that Shuko is playing with a claw machine. Oh, I give up. I give up. <laughs> so you're, you know, it's so frustrating. You're so close to the item, and it looks like it's in perfect position. And then the stupid gripper... Ugh, anyways. But why is it so hard to make them grab the item properly? From know-how to wow... The Bosch Global Podcast. Turns out, they make it pretty clear that they actually don't want you to win. They want you to win only after you've put enough money into the machine. In fact, the operators of the machine can adjust the strength of the gripper to the value of the item. And how would you know that? I've done my research. <laughs> uh -huh. Of course. So you can actually search the net for the claw machine manuals, which some journalists did. And they show that these claws intentionally don't grab the item properly. So you can only win when the machine lets you. <laughs> I'm sure that must be a, a very, very much a pain for any robotics engineers that are listening. Like our colleague Christoph Marx, for example. My team and I, we are coming from the world of manufacturing robots. And in this world, the whole task that a robot arm is doing is customized to one single item that needs to be handled. Those parts are treated with very high precision and high quality and also a big number of repetitive cycles. Christoph works at Bosch Corporate Research. Until recently, his job was to basically build the opposite of claw machines. Industrial robot systems that are very reliable and perfectly adapted to the specific item they're supposed to grab. And the whole process is developed around this one specific item. For example, the gripper is designed to grasp this one item and nothing else. And it has to grasp this item at the exact same position over and over again. So these robots, they're optimized to a degree where they do just one thing, but do that thing really well. Yes, and that's great, because that's what you need in the manufacturing environment. Lucky for us, we don't have to worry that a robot would ever get bored. Unfortunately, Christoph and his team thought... We were searching for a new challenge, you could say, and new environments where we could use our knowledge and our robotic arms. They had solved the problem of optimizing the robots for a well-defined environment. Now they were looking for something with a little more variability. And they went to the extreme because they became interested in warehouses. So hang on a minute. When I order something online, items are picked from the warehouse stock and put into a shipping box. Mm -hmm. Are you telling me this isn't automated yet? Oh, no, not at all. Well, not not at all. Uh, but it's still very much a manual process. And I mean, it's manual for even some of the world's largest retailers. In this warehouse environment, we have the exact opposite of the manufacturing world, you could say. 
Here you have millions of different parts with a high variety in shape, size, weight, rigidity and so on. And uh, this actually means we have a lot of uncertainty. And our challenge here was to build a system combining hardware components, vision sensors, software algorithms that can handle this uncertainty. That's definitely something that technology often is not good at, right? Tech likes certainty, well-defined parameters. Yes, exactly. And you know, we've talked a lot about sensors on this show already. And they're often used as a way for technology to, you know, really understand its environment, where it is, mm -hmm. so that it can adapt to that environment and respond appropriately. But often, both the understanding of the environment and the adaptation are limited. And that's because it's really hard to build a system which can do both. I think where we often see this is artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. There are always these science fiction narratives of AIs that outsmart humans, that know everything and become superior. <laughs> But in reality, AI often has a very, very narrow scope. Yes, indeed. Narrow, narrow indeed. The problem is uh, you really do need to balance the uncertainty and the reliability. You, you can build a system which is quite highly reliable, as industrial robots are a great example, mm -hmm. uh, But the natural trade-off is usually that it then cannot handle uncertainty or variability. Which means we need to control the environment very well so that the robot doesn't face any unexpected situations. Or you can try to engineer specifically for uncertainty. Huh. And that's when it's hard to keep the reliability up at the same time. Again, a trade-off. But how do you do that? You know, How do you build a machine that works even though it doesn't know what to expect? And... Not just a machine that works, but that works super reliably. This is something our reporter Thomas learned about during a recent visit to a museum. Because engineers have faced these questions before, and that is especially true for some engineers on Long Island. Um, so Thomas lives in New York City, lucky him. Um, so it was only a short trip for him. And there on Long Island, about 60 years ago, engineers put a lot of effort into building something for an environment that they didn't know much about. The moon? The moon. <laughs> so this place is called Cradle of Aviation. Why is that? Uh, it's called Cradle of Aviation. When you walk through the museum uh, in the early years of aviation, before the First World War, 1909, 10, 11, this area was a real hotbed of aviation activity. The first airport... So this is Joshua Stoff, by the way, the curator of the museum. So 50 years after Charles Lindbergh started on his transatlantic flight to Paris from here... Engineers created a vehicle that was supposed to carry people to a place where nobody had been before and get them back home safely, too. Okay, I think we're going to look at the Luna module, which was built by the Grumman Corporation here on Long Island in the 1960s. And it's not a model or a mock-up. It's an actual Luna module, LM-13, which was supposed to go on one of the later Apollo missions. It was ultimately, they canceled the last three missions. So we're one of three museums in the world that have an original Luna module. All right, what would you say... It looks like shape-wise. <laughs> yeah, they had a lot of nicknames for it. Um, spider was one of them. Uh, the bug, they called it, because it's kind of a unique, odd shape with very uh, big legs sticking out for the side. Um, so I think most of us have, have seen a moon lander or can kind of envision it. Mm -hmm. Thomas was nice enough to send us some pictures also. Thanks, sir. And I'm, I'm really sorry to say this, but I have to. Uh, it, it actually it looks <laughs> like one of the claws from the claw machine. I mean... 
three legs. It, it's <laughs> it's just a giant grabber. But anyway, you're not really continue. selling this. It's, it's stuff. true. You're not really selling the picture. <laughs> I think everybody knows. <laughs> well, anyways, the odd shape has its reasons, so we will get to that. Um, it was designed to deal with unknown conditions. They were designing and building this spacecraft before anything had landed on the moon. Even unmanned spacecraft hadn't landed yet. So they had to take every possible consideration into account designing it, not knowing what the lunar surface was like. Yeah, I guess they knew that it wasn't made out of cheese. (laughs) (laughs) That they did know. (laughs) But there was uh, a lot of uh, theories at the time that the lunar surface is covered with ice. So if the spacecraft landed on an icy hill and, say, slid down it, it might hit a rock at the bottom and tip over. So that's why they designed the legs to be so widely spaced on it. So if it slid down a hill and hit something, it couldn't tip over. Another feature is the foot pads on it, a very big dish-like structures, because another theory was that the lunar surface is covered with 20 feet of dust, and when the spacecraft lands, it's going to sink into the dust and you'll never see them again. So not knowing that, they designed these really oversized foot pads on it, and that was to compress the lunar dust, if there was any. A little bit like snowshoes. Yeah, yeah. kind of like that, but uh, it turned out that the moon was uh, a lot harder than they thought it was, so they didn't need these foot pads at all. It's interesting to think about that. They didn't know how fluffy the moon is <laughs> and how soft the surface actually is. Right. And it's not soft at all. It's really a pretty hard place. So, for sure, it was a giant leap for mankind, but apparently <laughs> it wasn't such a small step for man. Jeff. What? Come on, I had to. Uh... So, again, thanks to our reporter, Thomas, uh, for taking the trip to the museum, although I guess it wasn't such a hard thing because that sounds pretty fun. Mm. And also thank you to Joshua Stoff for showing us around and explaining how you build a lander for a surface that you don't know whether to call icy or fluffy. (laughs) Crazy to think that you have to plan for things like this and build something for completely unknown situations. So hats off. Yeah, it's really impressive. And... Back to Christoph and his team at Bosch Corporate Research. On a smaller scale and in a very different environment, they too are trying to adapt technology to many different parameters in a strange environment. Right. Christoph was coming from industrial robots where they had these 3D models of the parts that the robots were handling. And it was exactly defined where it would pick something up and where it would go. But in a warehouse, you don't know what item the robot will have to pick next. And there's no data on the shape or the weight or the color of the items. So they're probably not icy, but they might be fluffy. In such a warehouse, we have probably millions of different parts. And it would take so much time to build a database with all those features. And if there come new items to the warehouse, you need to update the database. And and, and let me tell you, the database administration is a nightmare on its own mm. from needing different people to update it and other people trying to trust if it's updated. You know, it's just, it's kind of a scary proposition. But so is the item in front of the robot really exactly the item that is in the database? Well, that's that's why it's such a hard thing to do. I mean, things are changing all the time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, very much on a literally on a transactional basis, they're changing all the time. So with that in mind, the team decided that the database approach is not the best for this situation. Instead, they came up with, in order to manage this uncertainty, is a system of fairly standard components plugged in together in a smart way. And most importantly, equipped with smart algorithms which is why they call this system smart item picking. 
The process starts with the item carrier box arriving at the robot picking station. Okay, so, oh God, I'm going to love this. Let's do some online shopping and um, let's wait. Let me see what I can order. Ooh, I'm going to order a new Spexer. Oh, Shuko, great plug. I love it. <laughs> uh, dear listeners, if you don't already know or don't remember what a Spexer is, go back to our episode titled Spexer, which was released in January this year. So then in a warehouse, there's a box full of Spexers that gets pulled from a shelf mm -hmm. and carried to a station mm -hmm. where products are picked and put into shipping boxes. But so what happens next? With a 3D scanner that is located at a certain distance over the robot station, we are making a 3D scan of the scenery. This scan delivers us a so-called point cloud, which is like a three-dimensional virtual model of the environment in front of the scanner. So the software tries to find the box that contains the items in this point cloud. Because part of this uncertainty and flexibility is that you don't have to place the boxes in exactly the same spot or even in an exact level position every time. So yeah, that's what I would think when you're dealing with a robot, that it has to be a predefined size of box and that it has to sit exactly in the right spot. Uh, no, no, that's that's not the case here. So we have that going for us, which is which is nice. Okay. We know a little bit more about the environment, and that's that's coming from from the point cloud. Now that the system knows where the box is that contains your specsers, again, you know, got to keep in mind what you're getting here. Uh, <laughs> what I'm buying. It it has a, a closer look at the points of the point cloud that are inside the boundaries of the box. And now in the second step, we are doing a so-called object segmentation, where we are trying to locate items and their poses inside the box in all six dimensions. Hang on a minute, six dimensions, X, Y, Z, and? <laughs> X, Y, Z, yes. Uh, Z? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, X, Y, Z, uh, and the other three describe the orientation of the item in the box so that it's, it's okay. the rotation around the X, Y, and Z axes. Got it. Okay. So to determine these coordinates, that's part of the job of these segmentation algorithms. And those segmentation algorithms now try to detect objects like, for example, boxes, cylinders, blister packages, or any similarly shaped items inside the point cloud. You could also say the task is to find promising clusters of points that form an item. But do the items have to neatly be stacked inside the box for this to work? No, and that's the thing. They won't be, which is another source of uncertainty here. Mm -hmm. um, and it might be counterintuitive, but a messy pile of items, just them strewn randomly, is actually not so bad for the system. Mm -hmm. You would probably think that the neatly stacked objects are way more easy to pick and to detect than the chaotic ones, but it's actually the other way around. And the reason for that is when, when the boxes are sitting flush next to each other, like very, very orderly, mm -hmm. it's harder for the system to understand where one item ends and the other one begins because they're, they're too close. Okay. Uh, when they're in uh, kind of disarray, they use these AI algorithms that help with this too, but we're going to get more to that later. But so let's say that the system has identified the items. 
time for the robot arm to move and pick one? Yes, exactly. But first it has to understand which one. We are rating the different item poses against each other with categories like position inside the box, size of the item, the fitting score, and so on, to find the best possible pick. What's the fitting score? So for that, Christoph refers back to the point cloud. It's a measure for how certain the system is that something is an individual item. Yes, exactly. So when we came to a decision what item to pick, the robot arm is then calculating a collision-free path inside the box to this item. To ensure that the robot arm and the gripper do not collide with any surrounding object, like a part of the robot cell, the ceiling, the picking box itself, or maybe the 3D scanner, we built a virtual model of the scene beforehand. And after suggesting a path that the robot arm could potentially move, we can simulate the robot movement and check for collisions. If we then find a collision with, for example, the item carrier box, the path then needs to be adapted. And this all happens before the robot actually moves. I find it so interesting that there are so many things to consider with this aspect. I mean, for humans, it seems like the easiest thing in the world, you know, just you know, grab something out of a box. We see kids, toddlers do this, including the collision-free path planning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of toddlers that aren't great with collision-free path handling, but yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> and by the way, our goal here is not to find just any collision-free path. We want to find an optimal path where we use the shortest way and save time for the movement as well. It is actually a complex, multi-dimensional problem that has to be solved within a split second. Wow. And not just solved within a split second, but remember what we talked about, the database aspect and the uncertainty of the changing environment. So the whole process runs anew each time the robot grabs something Mm -hmm. because that changes the scene. You know, when they pick it up, another item might move in the box because remember, they're just kind of in there. Mm. Um, So a new point cloud is generated each and every time. I can kind of picture the scene pretty well, I think. So one box to the right. Another box to the left, and the robot arm in the middle picks one item from the right and places it on the left. But one detail I'm still not sure about. What does the robot hand actually look like? Is it like a gripper in the claw machine, or is it better? I have a joke about that. It's not very appropriate. (laughs) Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but in high school, we used to have a game. Well, I guess we still have the game. I just don't play it anymore. Mm -hmm. It's called Suck and Blow. And it's, you use, you use a playing card Ah. and you have to suck it with your lips and then pass it to the person next to you, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like the grabbers that we're talking about. It's the same basic principle. We use suction cup grippers that are very versatile. We just need a small flat surface where we can build up the vacuum and then we are able to cross the item. It's basically your game. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what I said. So that's what they use during the development. However, it should be possible to use a different kind of gripper too. Uh, 
because customers can combine different components that fit their use case and their budget the best. There's actually a lot of effort being put into what's called the grabbing problem all across the warehousing industry. We defined a modular system of hardware components consisting of different robot arms, different 3D scanners, and different gripper solutions. So depending on the weight of the items, you could, for instance, install a robot arm with a higher payload, or depending on the size of the item, choose a 3D scanner with a higher resolution. Right, because the know-how here isn't the hardware so much as it is in Christoph's software. The software algorithms are actually the same, like the path planning for the robot arm, the object segmentation, they all work with different robot arms and different 3D scanners. And for the grippers, Christoph and his team have also worked with an array of suction cups. So when the system detects a large flat surface, the robot uses multiple suction cups, while on a smaller item, it would use only one. Which makes sense, but are we then done? I mean, the suction cup grabs the item and moves it to the shipping box. The end, right? Well, we haven't talked about one important step that happens before placing your Spexer into the order shipping box. Many customers require a reading of the item barcode before placing them into the shipping box. We've talked about reliability a lot, and this is part of it. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you're shipping the right item, and so you need to scan it. This would be useful for your Spexer order for sure, but it's a crucial example, especially if you're shipping something like pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. It could be very dangerous if you sent someone the wrong medicine. Usually the robot arm is then presenting the item in front of a barcode reader after having picked it from the box. But here we have sometimes a problem. So imagine if the robot has placed its suction cup exactly on the item barcode. The barcode reader is not able to read it. And in order to prevent this situation, we are using AI algorithms to find a pose on the item surface that does not cover the barcode. And now this goes back to the very beginning of the process, when the 3D scanner generates the point cloud. At the same time it's doing that, it takes a regular photograph and sends that to an AI, which helps with the object segmentation also. But the main task is to find the barcodes and block these areas for the gripper. To develop this, Christoph's team at Bosch Corporate Research started a collaboration with the Bosch CAI. That's the Bosch Center for Artificial Intelligence. Mm, so maybe our AI bashing earlier wasn't entirely fair. <laughs> um, obviously, there is AI that makes things more reliable, mm -hmm. even in this environment of many uncertainties. Mm -hmm. um, let me play devil's advocate here. What's so special about this? I think my smartphone camera could detect a barcode. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But could it detect dozens of barcodes at the same time and when they're in different positions? Fair point. The difficulty with reading the barcodes in our situation is that we have a lot of items inside the picking box and we need to detect a barcode in a very cluttered environment and we need to be very reliable. Again, the reliability topic. And the custom AI solves this problem. By the way, as Bosch introduces you know, AI into more and more products, I think it's important for us to know how people feel 
about these technological changes. Mm -hmm. And there's some interesting data compiled by our market research. So they did a representative study in five different countries and shared the results in the 2022 Bosch Tech Compass. Which, by the way, is publicly available, of course. Uh, for our listeners, just follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for adding that, Jeff. Of course. But let me go through some highlights from the study results. 54% of the people hope technology will make their lives more comfortable. The greatest importance in the future is attributed to AI and 5G. Asian countries, in particular, consider AI to be very important, while negative consequences are associated with it in Western countries. The first one here is really relevant. The hope in people that technology makes life more comfortable, that it's invented for life. I think smart item picking really contributes to this. Mm. You know, working conditions in warehouses are uh, not always great. To say the least. Uh, to, right, to be generous. And this AI-enabled robot arm can take on some of the most monotonous and repetitive and ergonomically challenging tasks. And maybe it will also change the perception of people in the West. They'll have a more positive association to AI mm -hmm. when they can immediately feel how it can make life better. Mm -hmm. um, so as you were saying, invented for life. So for that, of course, there needs to be a lot of effort into making the technology reliable, just like Christoph and his team did. Right. Christoph and his team of fellow engineers have mastered the uncertainty with their algorithms. They're now about to bring Bosch's automation experience and knowledge from the factory floor right into the warehouses. Bosch has a long experience in building automation systems in the manufacturing domain and knows how to ensure long-term support, industrial reliability and quality. So I strongly believe that smart item picking is very reliable. But I kind of have one burning question that still needs to be answered. Mm -hmm. Do you think Christoph's robot would be better than the claw of the claw machine? <laughs> You're really <laughs> after that teddy bear, aren't you? The problem would be that our suction gripper will not be able to grasp a teddy bear because the teddy bear's surface is not flat and a suction cup wouldn't work. Or shuko. We would need to think about another gripper system, maybe similar to the ones of a claw machine. <laughs> and then I could think of grasping one of the teddy bears. Why not? I'll keep you to that, Christoph. Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Christoph. Okay, Shuko, I'm going to give you one more quarter here for this Yay! claw machine. So, oh, these things are really <laughs> addictive, but... Um, I'd suggest that a better way to spend your time is to listen to our podcast. So go ahead and binge a few old episodes while we work on the next one. We're going back on the road and we'll explore new developments in the electric vehicle sector. But more about that next month. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Here's an idea, though. What about a claw machine filled with Spexers? That wouldn't be smart item picking but smart device picking. <laughs> <laughs>